There's the saying that there's none as blind as those who will not see. There are none who are as dark as those whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And today we marvel at how men and women can enter into gross sin and wickedness. We would think without thought or concern. We see them continuing to enter deeply into all kinds of licentiousness and godless behavior, even though they maybe have already been shown that the outcome will lead to all kinds of trials and difficulties. For those of us who can see the way of God, it is astonishing to think of the wickedness of the people around us and that it abounds and grows ever more uh, proud and arrogant in our day. And we ask, why can people not see or understand that this is contrary to, to God, but even contrary to nature? And the answer is, they are blind and their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. And sometimes today we might look around our, country, our world, our, our own society, and we think, when was ever anything as wicked as this in the earth? But there has been. Perhaps we are getting to the point of matching the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, or even the days of Genesis chapter 6. Because here, at the outset of the story concerning Noah, we read of men and women in their licentiousness and in their wickedness. And what we see in the following chapters, really, is God's response to man's wickedness. But here in these early verses, we have that response in a very clear way. God has been pained. He is angry because men rejected him. And he is ready to wipe the slate clean. He is ready in the midst of it all uh, to say that man is so wicked, I will do away with him. But then we find verse 8, but Noah. Those words, that but is another but of God's great grace. So as we look at these verses, we want to think first of all of how they speak of man's descent into sin. Here we see man's descent into sin. Now these verses at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 are much debated. There is difficulty. Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? Well, let me first of all pick out something that is quite clear and we need just to bear in mind the population of the earth had been growing daughters had been born to uh, Cain and his line Cain remember representing the ungodly those who had no time for God not only of course daughters but sons were born to them we have already covered that in the previous chapters that Cain continued to develop in his family line 
and sons and daughters were born to Cain. This was the unrighteous, godless people. But then we had Seth, the righteous one, coming in the line of Adam, and that is traced in chapter 5. But to Seth too, family is born, daughters and sons. So the whole population of the earth is growing. We noted last time, we thought about chapter 5, that in those days people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there was a testimony and a witness to the Creator, to God in all His goodness. That brings us to think about this text that tells us that there were uh, the sons of God, seeing the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. So what is the scripture referring to? Briefly, let me say, there are three views. The first, the traditional thought is that these sons of God that are in view were actually angels. Some of the great um, expositors and commentators agree, think that this was actually angels come down to earth. That the sons of God in angelic form came to the earth. I find that difficult to swallow simply because we never read of angels having relationships, sexual relationships, and producing children with people. To me, it doesn't quite fit what is happening here in the chapter. But it's one view. The second thought is that, in fact, this simply refers to the offspring of Seth, the godly line, the sons of God, counted as those who were righteous, And this also is a view that is taken by a number of uh, renowned teachers. That these sons of Seth, the righteous people, looked upon the daughters of Cain, the unrighteous, and were mixed with them. They were so heedless of the teaching of God that they entered into what we would call an unequal yoke. And perhaps... That may be the explanation, but it doesn't quite fully explain the language used, sons of God. There is a third view, which is sort of a combination of the first two. And that is to say that the fallen angels came and entered in in their demonic power to the sons of Seth, the righteous people, and were leading them astray. So they were, as it were, demon-possessed. So that they lustfully looked upon the woman of Cain, their outward beauty and form, and they simply were motivated by carnal desires, fleshly lusts, and they took them without regard to the, the God of heaven. And in that way, that is, explains that sons of God, that those created angels who had fallen from God's grace with Satan were now in the earth, in the body, taking on the form of a man and moving him to godlessness. And that is perhaps maybe as close or as we can understand later on when we think of Jesus, the demons 
always took possession or taken possession. Remember how Jesus spoke to the demons to cast them out from the people. Could this be a case of demon possession? And what is the result of it? Well, it is that these people are entering into wrong relationships. Into marriage, yes, but wrong marriages. Their behavior is simply gratifying their sensual lusts. They are simply uh, no thought about what the God of heaven wanted and the purity that God wanted. And Cain and his followers were wicked and were doing all kinds of evil. And as a result, we come to verse 4 and to the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. And so the Nephilim, we seem to explain this by saying these are the offspring of this diabolical union of godly, uh, of what should have been godly people with the ungodly, the demon-possessed with the daughters of Cain. And the produced violent, immoral people, men of renown. When we think of men of renown, we often like to think of men of renown for a good reason. Men of renown because of righteousness, because they have upheld what is good. And yet if we look at our own society, we know that there are people who have gained renown and they're, they're counted and applauded because of wickedness and sin. Think about some of the things that you see today on television. Some of those who are renowned today, who are upheld as beacons uh, to our society. People of renown. Why? Because they have come out uh, in their sin, arrogant and proud of being homosexual or of being uh, able uh, to sustain multiple relationships in adulterous relationships or for some other reason. Proud because they're changing the law regarding abortion. They're arrogant men and uh, violent people of renown and it's all wrong. And that's the kind of people that God saw when he looked down and people on the earth and their sin were applauding and looking at these people. These were the heroes of old. Heroes not from the point of view of God, but heroes in the point of view of a godless people who thought that they were pushing forward the boundaries of what was legitimate and good and freeing men up from the restrictions of God's law. The result of unequal yoking with unbelievers, the result of sin, the result of a lack of regard for the things of God. Matthew Henry makes an interesting comment. He says, The bad will sooner debauch than the good reform the bad. Those that profess themselves the children of God must not marry without his consent, which they have not if they join in affinity with his enemies. And what Henry is saying is just simply the Christian 
You should not be involved with the unbeliever. Because the ungodly will pull down the good before the good will reform the godless. What is God's response to this? Well, we will come to his response in a moment. But the first response we see in these verses is this. The lifespan of man is tragically cut. Remember in chapter 5, we looked at the lifespan of the people. 900 years, 800 years. What a terrific long life. Why does it fall to 120 years? Why do you and I not expect to live to be two or three hundred years old? Here's why. Because God saw this and he brought the lifespan down. God says, I will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. And so if anybody asks why you don't live longer, you tell them. Because of sin and because of man's wickedness. God has shortened man's life because of his sin. And while after this, there were a few who lived a little longer, there weren't many who lived beyond the 120 years. Friends, do you see man's descent into sin? They have left off God. They have mixed with those who have no thought or time of God. Violence and corruption is all around. Everyone is doing what is selfish in their own eyes. It could describe some parts of our society today. We thank God for the wonderful privilege of his word in these times. We need to uphold that word. But we will do so confronted by people who long to do what they have in their own eyes. They want to redefine marriage because it's a selfish lust. Even the taking of the unborn life is simply selfishness, sin. It's an inconvenience to them that they are going to have a child. Therefore, they just want to get rid of it. It's all part of man's descent into gross, immoral sin. And for those of us who love our Lord, it is sickening, and in our righteous hearts, it grieves us, for it grieves God. But it's nothing new. Here it is, in the days of Noah. Secondly, I want just to pick up a point concerning man's corruption of heart. And friends, you need to see what God sees. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Sin had taken over. And as we think about that, we could say how quickly things have degenerated from that first sin of Adam to now the population. All they think about is sin. There's no thought of God. Enoch walked with God, but now God is looking around and there's no thought, no one walking with God as they should. Every 
sinful thought enters the mind, the rebellion against God, the depravity of heart is very evident. God, you see, does a thorough examination of the heart. And he sees it. And what a thing it is for you and me to know that that is true for us today. In fact, as we think about the inclination of our hearts, you and I must be on our knees confessing that in fact we, only by God's grace, can be saved from that. We have only been brought to righteousness if it had not been for God calling us to faith in Jesus Christ. You know that every inclination of your heart, as I know, would be evil. In fact, that very inclination of the old self encroaches into my spiritual life and into yours, and at times we do battle with those temptations. But God does a thorough work of examining your heart, and He knows exactly what is in your heart. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, He knows that every thought of your heart is wickedly. Is wicked. You may hide it in the closet. You may think no one sees. But God certainly sees. He certainly knows. Just as certain as He knew these people in the days of Noah. And what a solemn thing it is to have the Holy God search out every aspect of your life. Not just the bits that are plain, but the inclinations of the heart, the attitude of the heart as much as anything. And God sees it. And He will condemn it. Here He is. and He is going to wipe the earth clean because of man's sin. Do you think for a moment that what has been foretold of the hell that is to come for the ungodly, that somehow it won't happen? Friends, what a solemn thought. It is certain to those who will not bow the knee to Jesus. It cannot be inverted except through Christ. Except through coming with humility before Him and bowing down and saying, Lord, forgive me, for I am wicked. So here's man's corruption of heart and what a challenge it is. What a challenge it is to you and me. We can so easily speak of others and we see their wickedness. We hate what they stand for. But friends, if we don't apply this and look at our own hearts, we've missed the point. It's easy to point the finger at others. But God asks you to search out your own heart. Are you right with God? Are or is every explanation only evil? And even though you may come to church, even though you may do some good, there's still clouding all of that wicked, sinful, and selfish desires. What a solemn thought. Here were people, and the result of their wickedness was God's, and God's response to their wickedness was his sorrow and his grief. And how he sorrows and grieves over God's, over man's wickedness. Now I want you to understand when we talk about the pain of God 
or the grief of God that we are using human terms to describe God. Because God is the immutable God. There's something deep here that we cannot fully grasp. But when we read the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain, well, that's accommodate language to accommodate our understanding. Because God in you, God is over all of these things. Put it into human terms. Would a father not be deeply grieved if you had poured out your life into a son or a daughter? You taught them all the ways of truth. You thought they were coming to walk in the ways you had directed them. You had shown them what is a right and good way. And then they go and they do all that is opposed to those things. Is it not huge grief and sorrow and bring tears to your eyes that, and painful when that would happen? We look at the prodigal son. Did not grieve the father when the son came and asked for his subst- for all his part and when the father saw him leave and knew that he was going away to spend it all in a riotous, wicked lifestyle. The father's heart was sore. And that's why the language is used like this. It's to demonstrate to us something of the, the, how God is uh, 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 gone against whenever we sin. He sorrow. Such is his dealing with man that he says, I'm about and I'm going to wipe man out. Sees corruption and darkness. He's going to obliterate it. I am done with it, he says. Go to wipe the slate clean. Wipe man from the face of the earth. I'm not much of an artist, but I can imagine trying to draw something on a page and it doesn't go quite right. What would you do? You would just rip it out and scrunch it up, throw it away. Here's the picture of God Maybe after doing a lovely painting, you're all beautiful. But then it's splattered by the paints and they run and they go everywhere and they're wrong. What's he to do? Tear off the sheet. Start again. That's a picture of what God is going to do in these days of Noah. And yet, in the midst, in the midst of his pain and his sorrow, We come to his grace. And how wonderful it is to read that but at the the beginning of verse 8. But Noah. There was one who found favor in the eyes of God. One who wanted to do God's will. One whose heart was with the Lord. One who was ready to serve God. And God comes to Noah. And it takes up his story. We read of how God will speak to him and Noah has to become a mighty man of faith in the building of the ark and all that comes. But Noah. Noah is the one through whom God's covenant mercy is going to be extended to the generations to come. It is through Noah that God's promise 
of Genesis 1.15 is going to be worked out. We can trace that. Remember, Adam and Eve believed that word of God and they had hope. As children were born, Eve was able to say, God has given me a man. That hope is shattered in Cain and Abel. As Cain kills Abel and shows his wickedness. God gives another man, Seth. And now, through the line of Seth, Noah is going to be the outworking, the gracious favor of God. And where does Noah point us? He points us right forward to Jesus Christ, who came in that same line of grace that we might know the Savior. God, if he were uh, not a gracious and loving God, would have wiped out the earth. God, if he were not uh, unchanging and true to his promise, would at any moment obliterate this world because of the wickedness that is all around us. But he graciously stays his hand, created man for fellowship, and he wants you and he wants me to enter into that fellowship and to bring glory to his name. Therefore he sent Noah and he sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior. So in the midst midst of the bleak and difficult spiritual days in which you and I live, there's only one answer. That's why we as a denomination have been working in these days to proclaim the answer. And it is Jesus Christ. Telling the world that in your sin you are condemned. But God in Christ has provided everlasting life that whosoever comes find mercy. That's the good news for you and me today. But Noah. And if you find yourself searched by God and still in sin, but Christ came that in Him you might live. What a wonderful gospel we have. And Noah speaks of it in the midst of dark and terrible days. And we can rejoice in God's favor to him. Because it leads us to Christ. Amen.